0: This is Cantus Firmus, Kingdom Theology for Christians Without a Country. Greetings, you're listening to Cantus Firmus. I'm Cody Cook. So, uh, I'm pro-life, and I've been struggling for a while now with this question about how to have better conversations about abortion. And the recent news about Roe v. Wade being knocked down has only made this struggle more pressing. Um, I've always known that I need to be careful with how I talk about abortion and the women who have them. So so I've been intentional about not using emotionally charged or insulting language like some anti-abortion people do. Uh, For instance, words like murder that imply an evil intention that I don't think most women who've had abortions bear. But not too long ago, I had some conversations about abortion where I tried to talk very objectively uh, and, and unemotionally about what abortion is. And I tried to avoid that emotional language, and those conversations still went very south. Um, It wasn't until later that I realized that the reason they went south was probably because the people I was talking to had either had an abortion or helped someone else to get an abortion. Um, So, Because of that um, kind of investment emotionally, they weren't really trying to get to the bottom of what abortion is. That wasn't their goal in the conversation. Um, They were repeating talking points, I think, in a lot of cases. Um, which they had accepted to protect their psyches from coming to terms with what they might have done if it turns out they were wrong. And so there was, there was a, a lot of skin in that game, so to speak. Be, being, being, being shown that you're wrong on something like that could be, could be really emotionally, you know, devastating. Mm-hmm. So, and I think that's kind of what happened in, in some of these conversations. Uh, hearing some of these arguments undermine their rationales and that made them very upset and defensive. And so what I learned from this was that even addressing this topic without the emotional language can cause a lot of pain and conflict for people. And I'm not interested in shaming people who've had abortions. There's not a benefit to doing it. In fact, I want people who've had abortions to know that there's grace for them, just as there is for every one of us. But I do want to change minds about abortion and maybe prevent future abortions. So. That makes me think I should be talking about what abortion is and why the arguments for it don't stand up to scrutiny. So that makes me feel kind of stuck. Uh, How do I have these productive conversations about abortion that can change minds, but that don't cause unnecessary shame or conflict? And that's why I wanted to talk to Jessica Green. She's the co-host of the Mad Ones podcast, and they've been uh, uh, generous enough to have me on a couple of times. And she has a story that uh, makes her someone who understands both sides of this issue. And I'll link to a couple Mad Ones podcasts where, where that story came out a little bit. Um, but I, I wanted to thank her for, for being here to kind of help me try to maybe publicly work through my own complicated feelings on this. So Jessica, thank you for being here.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for having me on. It's a pleasure.
0: So can you tell me a little bit about yourself and why this issue is meaningful for you?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, <clears throat> I probably spent most of my adult life as a very left progressive um, pro-choice person who, um, like a lot of people, as you mentioned, who support abortion or abortion rights has myself had an abortion. And so there is, as you very correctly said, a lot of psychological baggage that goes along with dealing with the fact that you might've killed a person. And while I agree with you that inflammatory language, such as calling people murderers is not going around, uh, you know, having productive conversations, it's also important to realize that both sides of this argument are talking so far past each other that it's almost as though like no one is actually having
0: mm. that
1: argument. They're, they're, ha- they're saying their points at each other, but no one's actually listening to the other side. And it, more than anything, we have we're having a vocabulary argument before we're having an ethical argument. Because we're not agreeing to terms about whether or not the ending of a human life at any stage of its development constitutes the killing of a person. Is a fetus a person? And at what level do they become? Many people who are pro-life believe that that moment happens at conception. And then there are those who say they believe that it doesn't happen right up until you're arrived from the birth canal. Although somehow magically five minutes before that you're not a human being yet,
0: or, or, so. or at some point along the way, like right. uh, viability, even though that's a it's an external standard, right? It's like well, it used to be you know it, you know science couldn't save you unless you were you know over twenty four weeks, but now we've developed these these new technologies, right. so. Your personhood is now dependent upon the advancement of science, of science outside of your body.
1: <laughs> and if we're having honest ethical arguments about that, what about people who are disabled and can't live on their own without machines or without the aid of a nurse or some other caregiver? There are lots of people who aren't viable in the wild, you know? Um, that's most of us, to be honest. If you dropped us off in the woods somewhere with a knife and a compass, we're not going to do too well. We're very very dependent, all of us on some level on each other. So again, we're coming up with this argument. It's not a new argument either. It's existed for a long time that there are certain people who don't qualify as people. And to me, that's the crux of the the argument. We're deciding whether these people are people or not. And we as a society, as a human society, have had that argument about other kinds of people. Had it about you know, the African slaves that were brought over, whether they were whole people or not, or are we just taking our place, our place of dominance within the animal kingdom? And, you know, all those cards start unfolding where we realize that a lot of these arguments are making excuses for ourselves about why we can call certain people non-humans. And unfortunately, the unborn who are the least the people least equipped to defend themselves are now the people being termed non-people. And so if you're dealing with a person who's of a very progressive mindset, who is very much steeped in this ideology of um, inequality being a great evil within our society, something that I found very convincing is the way that we dehumanize, that the dehumanization of unborn people Mimics these other points in our human history where we're using the dehumanizing aspect to control the lives of others. And so that's um, not necessarily a religious argument. So there are arguments that we can have, ethical arguments that we can have, that don't stem from, well, it's murder because my God said so, or it's not murder because my biology teacher said it's a clump of cells. Those two arguments don't they'll sail right past each other and not make a dent. You have to argue with people, not argue, maybe you have to discuss things people are at home with and, and comfortable with in terms like murder or inflammatory. You're not going to get anywhere with that.
0: Well, and one thing I've been kind of wondering a little bit, you know, it, it seems that in a lot of cases, things, um, you know, I- ideologies shift over time. It's, it's mm-hmm. almost like, you know, people sort of slowly but surely move into this new direction because of this sort of pressure, or because the culture starts to shift. And um, you know, what do you call it? the Overton window, or whatever uh, they call it?
1: Yeah, the the idea of what's acceptable within society. Yeah. Right? And,
0: and and for me, I think that's that's not that's almost intolerable because I would like to have a conversation and figure it out, and then just <laughs> and then you know once we've established what the, what the reality is, we're just we just need to go along with that. And, and it, it feels very strange to have some of these conversations, because like you said, we're having two different, we're not, we're having two different conversations. But there's also this, you know, in my experience, there's a handful of pro-choice people who I think will acknowledge uh, certain basically incontestable facts. And then right. they'll sort of say, yes, but we're still going to, we should still allow it because of this rationale or this other rationale. Sure, um, sure. You no know, uh, yes i agree that it's a baby but there's still autonomy that t- to be considered mm-hmm. and uh, mm-hmm. you know so at least there's there's some honesty there that i can respect um, but but i find that so many of these conversations uh, that i have with pro choice people they're they're making arguments that they would in any other circumstance view as pseudo scientific and special pleading and sure. that makes it i think hard to have a conversation and um, you know, because ultimately and, and, and which is not to say that I haven't heard pro-life people make fallacious arguments, but um sure, you know ultimately sure. all these political conversations uh get can get emotional, they're filled with these logical fallacies. Um but this issue feels more intense. And and I think yeah. it's probably because for a lot of people, um you know, the I think the, the Guttmacher Institute, which is Planned Parenthood's research wing, has come up with this number of a quarter of women have had abortions.
1: Yeah, that that's what I read earlier today when I was curious about this about how many of us are walking around, and yeah. it's a significant portion of the population. Yeah, so it's really kind of wild when people are that from the pro life side are coming out saying, Well, these we should jail all of these women, they should mm-hmm. be punished. All of these women, I mean, you're talking about like significant portions of the population, women who have children now, who are mothers now taking care of kids, like to. You're talking about something that we have to integrate into our society as something that happened. We had 50 years where it was legal to sure. kill children in the womb. That's um, an, an anor- enormous wound that we've dealt ourselves as a society. And to treat it with um, anything other than tender care is cutting off our nose to spite our face. Yeah. We're damaging an entire generation of women far more than they've already been damaged if we don't handle them with, with grace and forgiveness?
0: Sure. Well, there, there, there's, there's the grace forgiveness from, you know, that, that's, that's one of those areas where I think my faith does come into it because largely my arguments are biological and scientific and, uh, you know, just trying to be sort of logical about it. Uh, but yes, the grace component is is definitely a place where I think my Christian faith comes in, how I want to look at this, but yeah, you're right. I mean, to sort of have this, you know, kind of, strong arm approach after, you know, we've had some kind of a, 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 like, I don't know, made some legal inroads to sort of dealing with abortion, I guess, Yeah. makes me think about, because I've been spending a lot of time looking at the arguments made for and against slavery in in the 1800s and how they tried to sort of come up with these solutions about, well, some states can have it and some states can, a lot of these really, (laughs) there's a lot of overlap um, yeah, especially with the personhood thing, with what we're talking about with abortion today, and you know, thankfully, uh, you know, abolitionists and northerners didn't say, "Okay, anybody who's ever owned a slave, we need to kill now."
1: Right. <laughs> you know what right.
0: I mean? That would have been absolutely not the right way to go about it.
1: You can acknowledge that the practice is evil without saying that anyone who's participated in the practice for the last generation yeah. is, you know, have to be stricken from the society this is a problem we have with progressive leftism in its current form is that it offers no grace and forgiveness if you do something that's you know antithetical to what the culture says you ought to do. And this is sort of backwards from the things that Christians believe because we're actually like aware of the human condition and the tendency towards sin. So if something happens, even something as horrible as realizing, oh my God, I have murdered my own child. That's a incredible... For somebody like me, I, I, I won't kill a bug if I don't have to. If I can get that spider outside, I'm going to try and do that. To realize that you murdered your own child and that the uh, clump of cells argument doesn't really hold water as much as you thought it did when you were a teenager, that's an incredible uh, blow to your psyche. And we're talking about a quarter of the female population in this country. Do you know yeah. how many people are walking around with that millstone around their neck? I mean, there is there is nothing more pastoral that we can do for these women than offer them a way back, offer them the uh, hope that they can still you know, be good people, that they can still live good lives, that God still loves them. And we have to uh, develop that grace back into our society, develop that forgiveness back into our society. We've lost it. And with it, we've lost the way that we value human life, which has allowed all of this to continue. I think the, I mean, not to get too far off topic, but I think the this is all the product and the fruits of the sexual revolution of the 1960s. We are, all of this death and destruction and the um, horrible wound that we've dealt to an entire generation of women comes from the sexual revolution. And we, as a society, still have a way back from that, but we have to choose it. It's not something that can be forced onto us by the state, no more than we want them to force people to live in this means that allows the murder of children. We have to make it a a change of the heart within our society more than a system of laws, because the outlawing of abortion won't stop abortions. That's an argument that we hear and we dismiss it, but it's true. It will happen. People are still going to do it. So we have to create a society that supports women who get pregnant under non-ideal circumstances. Yeah. And that's a conversation that I don't think a lot of people on the conservative side of things are willing to have. It's that you remain a perfect virgin until you get married or you're a cast off from our society. And we treat women who get pregnant as though they're doing something that's ruined their lives. You, if you get pregnant before you get married, you've ruined your life. Now, what do we expect young women to do? We don't give them any support. So that's where I think like there's a mentality change that has to happen even amongst pro-life people who are very often Christian that, um, Teen pregnancy isn't the end of uh, your life. It's not a. Sh- it's not that shameful of a thing. We don't have to hide in a closet about it. We have to acknowledge that it happens, and then help these children to come into the world uh, ha- happy and healthy.
0: Yeah, I'd I had a, um, a biblical scholar named uh, E. Randolph Richards on um, a few weeks ago. He'd written co-written a book called "Misreading Scripture" with individual Assize. And he'd made a point that I thought was pretty fascinating about how in the East, they sort of had this understanding that if you, like, for example, let teenagers, you know, two teenagers of opposite sex who are attracted to each other get together, um, they're probably going to have sex. (laughs) And so there was, um, because of that, like the community and the parents had felt that they sort of had a responsibility. If a, if a teenager got pregnant, they sort of said, well, this was our fault. This was our failing. And, um, as a result of that, we are going to try to make this right by helping uh, this couple and this child uh, in our in our community, right? And, and particularly right. In, in churches, I think he was talking about specifically, but, but that was the way that these sort of churches in the East that he was a part of and, and assisted and visited, that's how they looked at it, which is not how we look at it. We sort of, we've imbibed a lot of this individualism stuff where you're kind of responsible for yourself and, you know, good luck. Yeah. Um, and, but, but that doesn't leave a lot of room for mistakes, you know? And, and I think, um, you know, having, you know, having sex as a teenager before you're married is a mistake and it's not something you ought to do, but it's also one of those things that in many cases we can hide our mistakes. But when, when you're pregnant, it's, it, there's, there's a certain shame that this is a mistake now that you're going to be showing off. And I think abortion begins to look really attractive. Yeah. Yeah um as a way to kind of get things back to normal to not have to admit you you maybe did something you shouldn't have um but as a church we have to acknowledge that you can make mistakes and you're still you can still be embraced by the community and you can still be loved and there is something
1: there's something so anti-feminine about the way we've devalued motherhood Mm. devalued the bearing of children to the point where if a girl becomes pregnant that it's considered the greatest shame that can befall her and that her life is over now because the shame and the stain of motherhood is upon her Mm -hmm. instead of what a blessing we've been given another life that God has given us this child and that we as a community are happy to receive another Christian soul into our midst. Yeah. Like where, you know, where's the, that it's a great study in the grace and forgiveness that we're supposed to show each other in the community because these are the most vulnerable, our teenagers, our young kids that are just coming into their adulthood when they're most prone to make mistakes. Yeah. How are we going to, what, do we want grace to be shown to us? Then it is imperative on us that we show them grace and bring them into a community that is happy to have them. And I think that, that that is the way you prevent abortions more than any kind of law that could exist on the books in any of these states. I think uh, Alabama is a near total ban on abortions, including rape and incest. Um, only the life of the mother is an exception. That um, That is all well and good, and I suppose that's a reason for pro-lifers to celebrate, but would what would really prevent abortions from happening is treating pregnancy like an honor, yeah. giving giving the due to motherhood that it deserves. Because women that used to be considered a great calling, like a deep spiritual calling to be a mother, and now it's considered something that gets in the way of your real life. Well, I, I
0: like yes, yeah,
1: Go on. <laughs> what a shame to be brought up in that environment where your mother considers you a hindrance yeah. to her life, you know?
0: Well, I like what you said about the shame of motherhood, because you're right. It's not the shame of uh, fornication or premarital sex, because as long as you can get away with that, it's not that big of a deal. It's getting pregnant or getting someone pregnant. <laughs> that's, that, that's, that, that's, what, that's what causes the shame, right? Uh, yeah, so that, that, that seems to be very counterproductive to an ethic of life. And, and and what's what's interesting too, I mean, and that's something that the fundamentalist approach shares with the sexual revolution, as we talked about it, right? Um, right that it's this kind of disconnection uh, and and shaming of the the sort of of our kind of our natural functions and what we you know can and, and in many cases right. ought to be right. Right. Um, I, I was thinking about when you brought up the sexual revolution. There's a, a, a pro-abortion philosopher named Eileen McDonagh. Uh, who wrote a book called Breaking the Abortion Deadlock from Choice to Consent. And okay. she's one of those who basically sort of acknowledge, yes, what we're talking about is a life, uh, but nevertheless, if the mother doesn't consent at any point, I mean, she may have been ready to have a baby and wanted to do it, but if it, at eight months or nine months she decides she's not interested anymore, she doesn't consent, abortion has to be, is an ethical option for her, right? Right. And there's a line in her book that I, I, I still remember to this day, uh, when she ref- she refers to the uh, the puritanical notion that sex leads to pregnancy, um, that she says that we we she thought that we had dispelled that in the sexual revolution, <laughs> um, and and so um,
1: that would you know, be a neat trick to dispel to dispel nature itself. You know, yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, but but it's essentially you know it's it's essentially this idea though. I mean, what she's getting at is we've we've created this sort of artificial. Uh, kind of relationship with each other um, by producing, you know, these, these birth control and stuff like that. So we right. can put ourselves at a distance from the natural consequences. And so when, right. you know, when, when when someone does get pregnant and they didn't intend to, it's like a surprise, you know? So,
1: the, and that's the thing. We come, at, we come at it from this argument of pretending we can control the natural tendency of teenagers and mm-hmm. that the consequences of those actions are necessarily harmful to their lives we're arguing about something I think that is beyond the point if the point is that it's a hindrance to have a ch- it's a hindrance to your education for example to have a child out of wedlock what are we doing to remove the hindrances to education that uh, motherhood entails are, are there ways we can make it easier for mothers to get education? This seems like the way, the avenue of attack, not to remove the children, not to, to not to uh, uh, abort the babies. If, if getting mothers into college is really the goal, what are we doing on the college level to make it easier for mothers to be there? And so that's why I find the, um, the pro-choice argument a little disingenuous, because the things that they're bringing up aren't actually being held from a perspective of how do we solve those problems. They're being held from the perspective that the child itself is the problem. (laughs) And then again, we're arguing about the term. Is this a child? Is this a unique human life? If you believe it is a unique human life, then there's no option to wipe it off the planet because it's inconvenient. So, you know, I always, every time I have this argument with somebody, I bring it back to terms. Are we saying that this is not a unique human life? Because if you can't even agree to that point, then we're not having a conversation at all.
0: You're just not. Well, keeping in mind that a quarter of the, the women you might, someone might speak to, um, is, have had an abortion, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. I'm going to presume that most of those women identify as pro choice, although some of them change their minds or maybe. Say, well, I'm pro-life, but I had this one thing that happened to me, and it doesn't count, Um, (laughs) right? Um, But it counts for other people, Um, (laughs) which happens sometimes. (laughs) Um, So, but but I'm I'm going to presume that most of those those women are pro-choice. That suggests to me that you know, at at the upper limits, half of pro-choice or pro-choice women that you speak to have had an abortion. Mm -hmm. Um, At the upper limits, probably less than that, but maybe we'll say a quarter. You know. Um, so if, if someone is, whether you're a, a male or a female, if you're talking with a woman who's pro-choice, there's a decent chance that she's had an abortion. So it's going to feel very personal to her. Yeah. Um, and I guess what, I, what I'm wondering is, is there a way to have that conversation or is that something or, or is that, can we not even have that conversation? Is, is it like um, uh, uh, um, St. Francis, you know, supposedly said, uh, you know, preach the gospel, use words when necessary. Are we just supposed to sort of, uh, you know, turn our churches in, into these places for, for women and children and, and show that we're going to help and just let that do the work for us? Or do we have to persuade? And it seems to me that persuasion should be part of it, um, but I'm just not really sure how to approach it when you're talking to people who are, I think, trying to um, protect their psyches, right? And And so maybe my question would be, you can answer that broadly, but I might ask what changed your mind? Was it something that happened over time or was it a conversation or or what was it that did that?
1: So I think when you're talking to people and they have a negative reaction to what you're saying to them, you assume that they leave that interaction never again thinking about what you've said to them. They are like rejecting it and you think, well, I didn't get through to them. What you don't realize is that, you know, two years down the road, five years down the road, they may still have those words ringing in their head. And you don't know that those conversations you had, where they rejected you, they're not at that, at some point later on, letting that thought develop into something else. And I think that that, I think that is what happened with me because because I can't pinpoint any one single conversation that made me decide, okay, uh, yes, this is the moment where I am now pro-life. I think it happened over a slow period of time where the arguments began to build on themselves. And I, too, was very uncomfortable with the thought that I had killed someone. That, that's an incredible pill to swallow. Yeah. And when you do come close to swallowing that pill, if you're able to get past that point where you reject the thought utterly and you try to accept it, there are other things that come with it, including suicidal thinking, depression, trauma, I mean, you're going to have a whole host of mental issues that a lot of people are going to need help to deal with. And so there is post-abortion counseling out there, just for anybody who might know somebody who's experiencing that kind of transition where they're starting to accept it and it's causing them severe depression. There is help out there from women who have been through that darkness and come out the other side. And have come to realize that God loves them, that they're alive today on earth because God wants them here. And that there is a way to, you know, make that into an experience that helps other women not go through the same darkness that you went through. And when you do act as a lighthouse to other people who are lost, it does in some way make what happened to you start to make sense. So that's just kind of my take on that. Yeah. Um There are, but if you're experiencing cognitive dissonance, which is you're hearing an idea that confronts and conflicts directly with what you've come to believe, it can cause you physical pain in your mind. Like you have physical, actual pain that happens in your head because you're experiencing an idea that is so hateful to you. And in that moment, you might reject it. But there are sometimes the person telling you these things doesn't realize that they're planting seeds. And so you can say your piece, but I wouldn't fight with someone to the point where they're upset because if they're upset, they're finding the idea very hateful. They're going to fight against it with everything that they have as a mechanism of self-defense. And that's not the greatest way to reach people. I think the other thing you said is the more operative thing. If you're out there doing the work where you're supporting pregnant women you're supporting, you know, if you're a guy, you know, you can support pregnancy centers. Um, are you telling your children, are you telling your daughters that if they get pregnant, you're going to love them, you're going to love their child, you're going to support them. We're a family and we're in this together because it's our daughters that are going to experience the next wave of unintended pregnancies. And glory to God for all things, including unintended pregnancies. We have to create a culture that supports them and not vilifies them. That is the way to make the argument. Because when others see Christians supporting their unintended pregnancies with joy and love and gratitude, then it's like abortion becomes an unthinkable option. I, I could not think to have an abortion when I know how happy my parents will be that I'm pregnant. Like I, you know, it's a, there's a shift that can happen in our in our consciousness that pregnancies don't ruin lives. Yeah. They're they're blessings. Glory to God.
0: Well, and you had um you we know, were talking about kind of how we present ourselves kind of the light um I did think about uh, Norma McCorvey who was the Roe and Jane Roe who I, I think had maybe some, <laughs> anyway, maybe some personal problems, psychological problems. I know she went back and forth on this issue at yeah. different points in her life, but I remembered um, an interview with her where, um, so after she sort of came out as Jane Rose you know, and, and publicly, um, she was hired on an abortion clinic and had this experience where she went and looked in the freezer and saw what they had, what they were storing. Um, but, that was a, a, a. That's a rough day. That was an important moment for her. But perhaps more important was that there was a, um, you know, a pastor or somebody who was um, part of one of those, you know, kind of life pregnancy centers, who tried to spark a friendship with her. It was very kind and and you know knew who she was and and still showed her a lot of love. And that gave her sort of somebody to talk to when she started working yeah. through those feelings. Um, <laughs> And so, you know, regardless of wherever she ended up, um, I thought that was a, an important story because she, she became at that point for at least some time in her life, kind of a pro-life advocate. Um, and, um, but but I do think that's important. And, you know, to try to kind of piece together a couple of things, I'm trying to come up with, with sort of guidance for myself on this. Sure, um, sure. If I'm talking to somebody who's pro-choice, particularly a woman, but it could be a, a man who's maybe someone he cares about who's had an abortion or he's encouraged to get an abortion. Sure. Um, it could be very emotional for him as well, very personal. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe the couple of things I want to keep in mind are uh, that if the conversation seems like it's going in the wrong direction, it's important to probably pull out of that conversation grace, graciously and gracefully. Absolutely. Um, uh, because you don't, you're not trying to create pain. Um, and so be very attuned to that. But maybe the, the other thing is, maybe a couple other things, like, like I talked about not using the super emotional or um, accusatory language I think is important.
1: Um,
0: but, but in addition to that, um, I think it, seasoning those conversations with grace, I think is, mm-hmm. is you know kind of the, the other side of that. You know, Not only not using nasty language, but being very positive about uh, about grace being a real thing and that, you know.
1: And another thing I might add to that is don't make the person you're talking to responsible for other pro-life arg- or pro-choice arguments that you've heard. Because mm-hmm. there's a lot of really wild people on both sides who are making batch sh- crazy arguments on both sides. And so I don't expect, I expect to be taken as an individual at mm-hmm. my own words And so if you're comparing me to another pro-life argument that you heard that I might not even hold, I think that would be dishonest and unfair. So I think that pro-lifers owe that to pro-choicers too, that just because you've seen, there are people, you know, you'll see the protesters where they're ripping up the baby dolls and be like, yeah, we love killing babies. Don't, not every person with a um, pro-choice slant is like that. You know, we're, we're all individuals, so just you know, take people. If you know this person to be a good and kind person, give them the benefit of that, and don't conclude that they're approaching this from malice. Um, that they might, you know, maybe they're misguided. If they understood where you were coming from, they might feel differently because you know them to be a good person. So give them the benefit of the doubt too.
0: Yeah. Well, yeah, and, and yeah, I like that. That's that's good because I think a lot of the times you hear about this with a lot of issues, right? You know, um, you could be a, a, a parent with a gay teenager and not realize it. And you're talking about, you know, the way those homosexuals act and and behave and, and, and what you're, you're saying something that's this very broad, nasty statement about people that you actually care about and that aren't that way. (laughs) Right. 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 And, and, And so if you go into a conversation talking about those baby killers, uh, and somebody that you care about, who you know to be a kind and and, and well-intentioned person, who's had an abortion, um, that's that's devastating. And they know that you're not a safe person at that point as well, um, or at least, it, 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 and they you know, at least they're not willing to give you a shot.
1: And you may think that no one around you is like that. Oh, no one I know has had an abortion. Well, you don't know that. It's a lot more people than you think, and a lot of people don't tell anyone. I, there are friends that I had for 10 years or more who didn't know that I had had an abortion until I started speaking openly about it. And I didn't start speaking openly about it until I became Mm pro-life. So when I was pro-choice, I was quiet and shame, shameful about what had occurred. And only when I became pro-life, did I find a supportive enough environment, um, to actually speak about it. Honestly. And like received uh, love and care as a result of that. So, you know, I attribute that to the Christian community that I'm part of, but we have that's, you know, we have to show ourselves as Christians through our acts, which means that we, you know, are graceful and we are forgiving when we encounter people who have done things that we consider morally incorrect. And that's sort of, you know, we, I think often about Mary the mother of God and how she was a pregnant teenager and basically the last place in time that you ever wanted to be a pregnant teenager. And, <laughs> you know, there's not there was not a lot of grace and forgiveness for a pregnant teenager in that position. And yet her unplanned pregnancy changed the, the fabric of humanity. And so we have to look at these as, as wonderful blessings and not not shameful acts to be hidden, to be celebrated even, to be joyed over.
0: Yep. Yeah. I was going to say, there, there's a, maybe some political cleanup maybe to do now that we've, now that Roe v. Wade's happened. Yes. And, or even just kind of just thinking it through and talking about it. Because I, I had mixed feelings about it. Because... On the one hand, I thought, you know, hey, this could be good that um, maybe that's maybe that's less babies dying. That could be a positive thing, right?
1: For a time. Um, yeah. mm-hmm.
0: And, you know, I'm, I'm kind of libertarians swaying back and forth with anarchism sometimes. <laughs> so I, I have some mixed feelings about government intervention. Um, but it seems to me that if you're going to have a government, one of the things they probably ought to prevent is, uh aggression and killing people and that sort of thing so it seems reasonable that they would have something to say about abortion um although as we discussed not not in a heavy-handed or you know kind of way but but the uh, kind of with that in mind though um i know that you've I, I don't know that you use a lot of political labels now but in the past you sort of identified as libertarian mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. i think that means you're you're more aware than than many of us are about how government messes pretty much everything up that it does
1: yeah and
0: so my question would be, are you concerned about some conservative states going overboard and creating undue restrictions or invasions of privacy for women?
1: Yeah, so I've heard claims to that effect, and um, I, I, I certainly know that that's possible. A lot of times the state anytime it tries to over correct anything, it overcorrects. And um, I am I, Unhappy about the idea of the government legislating any of this because while we in the US have experienced um, abortion up to nine months free and clear by choice, there are other places in the world, like China, for example, where abortions were forced on people during their one child policy. So anytime the government has its hands involved in something so personal as, as the medical decisions of women about what they're, whether they'll reproduce or not, the effects can be very bad. So I, I don't want that at all. Um, however, I agree with you that if there's to be a government at all, and I don't know a time when there wasn't, at they, 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 the, the very least, they should protect the lives of the most innocent human beings. And so we are at an impasse amongst a bunch of people about whether we agree That a fetus, an unborn fetus, is a human being or not. And that's what, they're using a lot of different legal arguments, oh it's about medical privacy, it's about this, it's about that, to find a way to argue around the idea that fetuses don't have human rights. And so, you know, I I think the converse, I don't think that this condition where Roe v Wade is repealed right now will be the permanent state of things another case will come through the courts where federal abortion is enacted again. This isn't the like the end of the road. The, the progressive left is not going to sit on their hands and go, oh, I guess we lost this one on a technicality. Um, they'll be going back and forth about this for quite a long time. Um, in the, the, the meantime, the most effective means we can have as individuals isn't involved in the state, whether states have uh, overreaching abortion Laws preventing abortions, or they have um, free and clear abortions up to nine months. The most effective way to prevent abortions is on the ground level. What we're doing as a society and a culture. So you know that that's where I want to put my focus. Not necessarily worrying about what one state or another is going to do, because we have to operate around that. Regardless, they they'll pass laws, they'll repeal laws. None of that. Um, is my concern. My concern is how we treat unborn, uh, the unborn, and the women who are carrying those pregnancies.
0: Well, and, and I, I hope that those who've been pro-life activists will try to follow that through consistently, and pushing back against laws that <laughs> that that go overboard, that that do violate yeah. the, the yeah. privacy and rights of women. Like, um, you know, I, I you know, pro choicers you know point out you know, well basically there, there's two people involved in an abortion and pro choicers you know lean on well whatever the mother wants that's what's important and and mm-hmm. i you know one thing i think is they they're right about is that pregnancy is complicated because it involves a woman's body and it's the only time where other than like maybe conjoined twins where two people <laughs> are tied together in that sort of way mm-hmm. and and i think that makes abortion complicated but i still don't think it justifies deadly force but it mm-hmm. does mean that I think from a legal perspective, we can't treat abortion like we treat murder or homicide, uh, where we would, uh, you know, a woman's body would become a crime scene after a miscarriage,
1: right? Sure. Right, right, right. So
0: I think, you know, pro-lifers pro- need to be very clear about where the focus needs to be on as far as what we're, what, how we're trying to stop abortions. Um, I don't and,
1: think that they considered um, sorry to interrupt, I'm yeah. so sorry. Uh, they don't they they didn't consider miscarriages to be murders before abortion was legal. i I think that that's kind of a put on. It, it I don't could see
0: yeah, it, it could be but I but can I could I could, ima- I could see some kind of you know um, you know, hot uh right wing uh, prosecutor going after. A woman sure. who's maybe had a miscarriage because, you know, some of the details looked a little funny. I think you're, you're probably right. There's some of these examples you hear where it's like they're going to have police at, at state lines making sure nobody's sneaking out to get an abortion. See,
1: that's, that's kind of crazy weird. to me because they can't, they couldn't even get people to take COVID tests. Yeah. I don't understand how they're going to stop every car at the border and get you out to take a piss test to see if you're pregnant or not. It's just like yeah. the practicality of it just seems oh, yeah. like, yeah, <laughs>
0: so... But, but I, I can't see, such, such, I could imagine situations where there were a state or, or a prosecutor or whatever would go overboard. And I think we need to be, as pro-lifers, especially if we've been activists on this, I sure. think we need, we need to be saying, okay, we want to protect babies, but we also care about mothers and this is mm-hmm. too much. We can't do this. This is inappropriate.
1: Um, right, if, right.
0: If there's a lot that goes further than it needs to.
1: But see, that's the thing is like, I hear about that, but I haven't seen that come into action. Action. like when i see that come into action i think yeah. that that would be a point where you know sure. you would have le- legal intervention but so far even in the strictest of states like alabama which had a trigger law that went into effect like that and it banned pretty much every abortion except for the life of the mother but then on the news you hear them saying well it's the, um banning virtually all abortions so they don't want you to understand that there are exceptions for medical emergencies they want you to believe that it's like uh, what's that M- Margaret Atwood book, the The Handmaid's, handmaid's tale. tale. They want you to they want you to think that they're doing The handmaiden's Tale, and they're not. Yeah. So, like, I encourage people when you hear something in the the news media. I mean, look into it for you have to look into it for yourself because sure. they're largely using language to make you believe a thing that's not necessarily true. Sure. and yeah, I agree. With a that. a yeah. lot of that is a put on, I think.
0: I think so too. Yeah, the way we politicize these sort of horror stories, um, yeah, and, or, or, or or make them up, <laughs> um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, or make mm-hmm. them be the universal, you know, um, but yeah, but but I do think you know if, if there was a state that said we're going to um, uh, ban abortions even when it would save the mother's life, I, I would I I I hope that pro-lifers would say that's actually not appropriate because the mother's human, right. the right to self-defense, and that's a choice she should be able to make actually. Um, You hear
1: these if, this, then arguments all the time where it's like, oh, if you're so pro-life, then why don't we end the death penalty? And I'm like, yo, sign me up. I mean, you're painting a dishonest picture of people who are pro-life if you say that they are all also in support of the death penalty. Because you've constructed um, a straw man pro-lifer in your mind that you've decided this is what we all believe. But pro-lifers, we do that too with um, the pro-choicers. So we're talking right past each other because you're seeing a hysterical, blue-haired college, uh, you know, co-ed who's had 15 abortions. And that's just not the the length and breadth of it. It's somebody, you know, whose sister had an ectopic pregnancy or, you know, their girlfriend got pregnant when they were teenagers and they were scared. And they they because of the shame our society puts on pregnancy, they did what they thought that they had to do. And, like, we have to... Um, really realize that these constructions, these straw man constructions aren't real. We, we made them up yeah. and stop arguing about them because they're not real.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, and yeah, that's, that's fair. Well, and, and I think another thing I'd maybe say in the opposite direction is, I mean, we've talked about the, uh, you know, the, the, the frightened teenager and, and so on and so forth. I think that there are, there are a lot of women who have said, well, I have three, Kids already, I'm pregnant again, I'm not ready sure. to have another one. And they may be in a secure situation, they're not scared, they just don't really value that thing until it's born. <laughs> and um, that's, I think, it's also a part of that's why I think we do still need to have conversations about what it is that we're talking about. Sure. Because sure. That, that's actually a, a decent percentage of abortions that take place.
1: Mm-hmm. Um,
0: mm-hmm. And but yes, anyway, um, so I know that. Uh, so, you as a Christian and, and Christian who sort of has these sort of libertarian leanings, especially you're inclined to reject the violence of the state. Um, is it a mistake? Do you think that, that we've approached abortion as a political issue and not as like a spiritual issue issue that requires, uh, you know, non-coercive means like prayer, persuasion, evangelism? Uh, is it, is it a both and, or is it an either, or how, how do you, how do you feel about that? Because that complicated my feelings a little bit once I started to sort of move into more anarchist kind of perspectives.
1: Yeah, I, I understand the idea that, you know, we're, you're moving it down from the federal government to the state government. So you're decentralizing the control mm-hmm. of this aspect, but um, you're not resting that control with the individual people. And so there, there is that libertarian argument about that. But we also don't allow individual people to murder one another. Like, yeah. I, I, I have a hard time understanding the ethical argument behind that. Like, yes, um, the mother didn't get to choose to kill her child. But if a mother kills her child after it's born, she is considered a murderer. That's a unique human life, a defenseless human life that was, you know, taken before its time. Like, that's not a um, religious or spiritual argument at all. We agree that murder is wrong, whether we're spiritual or not. So there's you know i would I would have to have the ethical argument made to me that it's not you know, the destruction of a unique human life. Mm. And they failed to do that. So I yeah, I, I haven't read read the entire two hundred and sixty seven page um Supreme Court opinion as to why Roe, you know Roe was turned over specifically. Um, but what I do on a very sort of global level understand is that you're moving control of this issue from the um, federal government down to the state government. Yeah. So I, that on some level has to please the, the libertarian yin that says, you know, we want to decentralize power. That's been accomplished here. Is it perfect? No, but everything in life is a trade-off. That's sure. certainly something that a libertarian should understand.
0: Yeah, the, the, trade, the trade-off thing is a fair point. Yeah, I, I think for me, um, you know, when I th- if I think about like slavery, for example, I would rather have a federal Fourteenth Amendment saying that you can't enslave people uh, than saying, "Well, let's let the states decide," <laughs> because I think in that case, what the federal government is standing up for the individual, uh, and the state government might not. And so, even though you're decentralizing, you're getting closer to the individual in some cases. Um, what you could actually be doing is, is making it harder on the individual and violating that individual's rights. Sure, as a Christian, sure. um, you know, I, I think, um, you know, as I'm called to reject violence, it makes it, it makes me feel very complicated about political solutions. You know, as a libertarian, I think political oh, should. solutions are often bad, but, but, but as a Christian, I would say, I don't really want to like, vote or support violence in any case, but, but I do understand that God has, you know, kind of ordained that there be some systems in place mm-hmm. uh, to punish those who who kill and steal, um, and even if I, as a Christian, maybe want to sort of be apart from that to some extent, um, I can I can recognize that there's there's if you're going to have a state, they ought to, they ought to make it so it's harder to kill people, <laughs> or, or you yeah. can get away with it at least, right?
1: If the state's going to exist at all, but it yeah. refuses to protect the absolute most innocent form of life that we have, then you are having trouble with me making an ethical argument at all for any kind of government. And at that point, what's the ethical argument for us not killing each other? You ha- I want your gold watch and I have the ability to smack you over the head and take it. What's the ethical argument at that point for me not doing it? I mean, ever- all things go out the window once we've decided that the smallest, most innocent, least able to defend itself human life. Is not human, and you know this is a a societal. uh, That's where you're reaching the spiritual problem. The problem is the devaluation of the human life. It's never going to be fixed in the government until we fix it in our um, in our local environment, in our churches, and in our homes. And we're telling our children, you know what? Um, I I would, you know, I, I hope you will wait till you get married. But if you do get pregnant before you get married, I am overjoyed. To have you in this new life, and that you will always be welcome with us, and we're always going to support you. That's the way that you end abortion in our society, not through laws and regulations. I, I honestly, I think they're going to go back and forth for the next two hundred years about this, trying to one up one another through some legal avenue, um, some some discuss, you know, legal opinion. I when I. I'm not a lawyer. So I, I read this and I say, yeah, I don't understand why this is happening. I'm happy less babies will die. I'm, I'm happy to see power decentralized. I'm, you know, I, I'm not a legal scholar. So I, I can't tell you if I'm happy about this or not, because frankly, I don't understand it. Yeah. And I, I admit that openly. I don't understand the legal ramifications of all of this. But what I do understand is less babies will die. Yeah. So I'm happy. Yeah.
0: So maybe a final question, because this is kind of on the theme of, of, of what I think partly why I wanted to talk to you. Um, okay. what, what do you think would have helped you the most when you were considering abortion to change your mind and feel better prepared for motherhood? Would it have been an argument? Would it have been a certain level of support, community? Is there, is there one thing that you think at that time might have pushed you in a different direction?
1: Um, I, I was completely alone without support. Um, the father of my child was, uh, an abusive person and I was disconnected from any kind of support structure that I had when I found out that I was pregnant. Um, I believed because of what, you know, the society's attitude toward motherhood and pregnancy, that if I had this baby, I was a teenager. If I had this baby, it meant my life was over that I I had no way of having success. I would always be in poverty. This was the greatest shame and anathema that a young girl could possibly do. And so the responsible thing to do would be to have an abortion. And there was no one in my life who told me anything other than, well, it's your choice. You gotta Mm. make a choice. Well, I was a teenager. I needed somebody to give me guidance you know, a little bit of guidance, you know what, you don't have to do this. There are, because even in my time, we're talking about over 20 years ago when this happened, even in that time, there were methods of support, but I didn't know what they were. I didn't have access to them. And I had no one in my life who was willing to tell me it's going to be okay. This is actually a blessing. Children are good things. So if anything, and this is maybe something I, you know, I, I feel like when I have these discussions that people always feel like I'm veering off the point when I say this, but I think it's the main point. Children are blessings. Children are wonderful things. And if we change the attitude about children in our lives and what it means to have children and what, what a great and awesome responsibility and, and wonderful gift it is, that could change the minds of a lot of women who are considering abortion. Because what are you, you know, why are you getting rid of this child? Because you feel it's, it's a burden, because it's, it's more than you can handle. There's all kinds of, you know, reasons that women don't feel supported enough to get, to go through with having the child. So if we create mechanisms of support for young women who find themselves in the family way, we'll go a long way toward decreasing abortion, much more so, I think, than any ban will ever accomplish.
0: Jessica, I want to thank you for, for taking time to, to do this with me. Uh, people who uh, want to learn more about you, or see, what you see what you're see what you doing, your podcast uh, is The Mad Ones. The website for that is wearethemadones.com. That's
1: right.
0: Uh, and you are on Twitter, at <laughs> yes. soup soup so can SoupCanArchist,
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: can, but then can is combined with anarchist. So soup anarchist, can. right? right. <laughs> anyway, so thank you for doing this. I really appreciate you uh, being willing to kind of be open and honest, because I, I think this is a, a tough issue that I think pro-lifers, uh, I don't want I don't want to say we need to do better because there's some people who I think are, are really doing some excellent work. on it,
1: that. yeah. I don't want to
0: sell those people. Uh, but I think I, I want to see that expand. Um,
1: just know that the work is just now beginning. We the, This isn't like where we rest on our laurels. This is where we really start doing the work. And the work is about supporting pregnant women.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it, it would be wonderful if... Pro-lifers and, and and religious communities would um, be so supportive and so effective in changing minds um, that when it came time for 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 for, for laws to be written, um, the the appeal of making abortion uh, easy easily accessible would not be so so strong. Right.
1: All right. Right. Couldn't agree more. Wonderfully said.
0: All right. Well, thank you so much, Jessica.
1: Thank you.